Uh, thank you, Craig. I hope everyone can hear us. Uh, it's, it's not the most ideal of circumstances uh, in terms of, of, of uh, being able to hear us, but uh, I think we are obviously uh, privileged you know, to have with us uh, Sir Christopher Pissaradis, who uh, is Professor of uh, Economics at the LSE, and as uh, Craig just informed you, he's actually the, also the Regius Professor of Economics at the school. Uh, actually, by way of background, and, 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 and Craig actually uh, indicated, hinted what it's all about, in the last century, there were only two Regius Professors who were, which was created by the Queen but on her diamond jubilee year in 2013, uh, there were 12 appointees. And the LSE suitably got the appointee for economics. And Professor Pisaridis got it as Professor, Regius Professor of Economics. And appropriately, appropriately too, because he won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2010. And so it's a high honor both for the school and for the person. And I would like to start by asking Chris how he felt on being accorded this honor. Well, difficult to describe how one feels. I mean, I was humbled. I didn't expect it, of course. I thought it was a great honor for the school, but I never thought that I would be the first person to be invited to take the chair. Uh, of course, uh, you know, I, I took it. I, I feel very uh, honored in a way. I feel that we can still do a lot for the school. It's a place where I, um, I went and did my PhD. I didn't do my undergraduate work there because I was rejected when I first applied to become an undergraduate <laughs> student. Otherwise, I would have gone there as an undergraduate as well, <laughs> like my friend Danny. <laughs> Sorry, not Danny. <laughs> Danny was <laughs> and, um, and have been on the faculty practically ever since. So I, I hope that this new position that was given and the honor that the LSE has entrusted upon me is something we can use mm, to mm. promote the interests of the school, which I'm sure you all feel that, um, that, that they deserve. But I never thought when, um, when close to 45 years ago I came from Cyprus to do a quick degree and go back and work in my father's uh, shop in Nicosia, which, by the way, currently is right in the middle of Nicosia, and it has the Turkish army on one side and the Greek army on the other side, my father's shop. <laughs> I never thought that I would um, stay on so many years and become the royal professor in, in, in London. So thank you very much, all I can say to the LSE, and right. I'll do my best. <laughs> it's, very, it's also it's interesting, that same queen, when she opened uh, the new academic building, of the LSE in November uh, 2008. Uh, she had lost, uh, in terms of her net worth, about 25 million pounds, which is more than a third of the value of the new academic uh, building's cost. Uh, she had asked uh, an LSE professor at the opening 
Why didn't anyone see the crisis coming? Uh, this was the 2008 financial crisis. And uh, the guy said everyone thought everyone else was doing something about it. Uh, uh, obviously, the Queen was a bit agitated that you know, she lost 25 million pounds. Uh, and there has since then been a kind of attack on the discipline of economics. Uh, people call it a profession. I'll just keep it to discipline. H how do you think uh, the discipline of economics has responded to this challenge? Well, first I have to admit that I'm glad I wasn't the professor on the fire line from Her <laughs> Majesty when she came to London in, uh, to the LSE. In, in contrast, when I went to the palace to get my knighthood, the Queen wasn't able to do it because she does have to stand for more than an hour and do small talk, and given her age, she delegates that to um, her successors. And uh, Prince William delegated it to me, and the only oh. question, the only question he, he gave me the honor, and the only question he asked me is whether I would be prepared to teach his son economics when he becomes of age. And I said, yes, you can trust me, I'll still be here 15 years from now or 20 years from now and, and do it, which was a much easier question to answer. Now, your question how the economics discipline um, responded, I, I do think economics gets a bad press when it comes to economic problems. It, it, it's not the perfect science. It hasn't analyzed anything, but... But I can give you an example. When the, when the AIDS epidemic hit the world, where HIV and AIDS epidemic, no one said, medicine has failed us. Let's throw away all these medical doctors and that. They all said, you know, this is a problem we don't know about. We should learn about it. Pour more money into, into medicine, do research, and we're going to learn about it. Now, when the financial crisis hit, and, and it was completely unexpected as much as... Uh, HIV AIDS was unexpected in the medical oh. profession and then people responded by saying all these useless economists, what are they doing? Why didn't they tell us about it? Well, you know, I mean some problems we've made a lot of progress of you know, I, I like to think that in the area of research where I spend most of my career we have made progress, we do understand unemployment better now than then but uh, understanding uh, how financial crises come about, we, we had some ideas before uh, but not perfect and since then there's been a lot of research in there. You know, maybe not enough research money being thrown right. at it as, as uh, other disciplines. Right. So consider that to be an invitation. We have a very good new macroeconomic center at the LSE where all the macroeconomists are working on understanding this, uh, what went on there within the Department of Economics in the new uh, building. But we're making good, good, good progress. So, I, I mean, I like to think that we responded positively, in fact, in the, uh, in, in, in the new circumstances. But I also have to confess that we still do not know the answer to uh, how do we avoid similar crises in the future. I think there are, there are the many economists among us this evening, or so they would like to think anyway, you know. And uh, uh, can you describe your area of expertise and concentration. You know, you've been involved in, in labor, uh, economics. Uh, your, 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 your main uh, book that's been quoted again and again is on uh, equilibrium unemployment theory. Can you give uh, you know, those among us present 
here a sense of what you have done in terms of the development of the theory. And that was actually at the base for, your, for the award, finally, of the Nobel Prize for Economics. Give us a feel of what you've done, or you feel about yeah. it. Remind me, how long do we have? Uh, we have ten, uh, five minutes for that answer. Okay. <laughs> you see, I, I think that um, to have an impact in, in economics, both within the profession and outside, you have to take a big problem and then say, why don't we understand what's going on and what can I do to understand it? In my very active formative research years, the, the big phenomenon in Europe in particular was rising unemployment. Unemployment was rising very fast in the late 70s through the 80s. We couldn't understand why Keynesianism was dead. Mm. We thought, following Friedman's monetarism mainly, but other people's the rational expectations revolution of the time, that if you pre-announce a policy to defeat inflation, for example, unemployment wouldn't respond. And yet it did respond, and it wasn't coming down. In Britain, the economy recovered in 1983. Unemployment kept rising until 86. Vacancies were coming onto the market and not being taken on. So the, the, the big challenge I took on was to understand why that was happening. Why is it that unemployment went up, stayed up, and then gradually came down, but not all the way down to where it was before? And that gave rise to the idea that if we're going to understand unemployment, we have to understand differences between people, differences between jobs, what requires a job and a worker to come together, therefore the idea of search. We call the differences that exist and the absence of information about it friction in the labor market. And the outcome of that is that you could have a situation where the people who are, that where the economy is changing, the underlying economy is changing all the time, there is structural change, but labor is not adapting fast enough workers, and therefore the workers have outdated skills which are not matched to the new vacancies coming onto the market, and therefore you have vacancies and unemployment coexisting. Now you might say, isn't that obvious? Well, as um, one um, mathematician, I think, once said, the, the, best, the, the most difficult theories to prove are the ones that prove obvious results. Essentially, you're talking <laughs> about information flow, about the in, labor market in, needs in, in, information, response. Information is absolutely critical, but, but what's more important is how do you deal with that situation? Because taking all the unemployed and, and trying to retrain them it is, it's, not, it's not a solution. It, some of it is a solution, but it's not quite a solution because there are different backgrounds, different skills. They are not all suitable for that. But what we did um, conclude is that you do need to support the unemployed to stay within the labor market. You do need to provide uh, income support for them, but you need to structure the income support in a way that is always giving them incentives to get into the labor market and take a job. And a lot of the work that we did was to provide the theoretical background to how do you structure support for the unemployed. Mm. And, um, and, and at the time, not many people um, believed us or followed us. The Scandinavian countries were the first uh, who adopted measures of this kind. The OECD then started recommending them. 
and they, they've now become part of the mainstream. And, and I guess that's why the theory was uh, mm. uh, rewarded in the end with, with the prize. Yeah, very often, you know, sort of people in, in the practical world, in the practical world, ask of uh, theoretical uh, economists, how much do they really know about the real market? the people that you were talking about, the unemployed people. So what kind of research do you do to reach out and find you know, that there was this disconnect, there was this friction? Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of research do you do to come to that conclusion there was a friction? Well, the, um, the, the, the research we do, at least in the beginning in developing the theory, it's a very lonely kind of research locked up in our offices looking at uh, actual data statistical series that uh, are compiled by someone else like the OECD or the uh, or Eurostat or national uh, statistical offices and and what you have to do is to, is to understand the raw numbers of what's going on before you go out and um, make the policy recommendations or even um, uh, run new surveys to see what, uh, what people are, are thinking. It's a long, it, it needs a lot of patience. It's a long process. I mean, I started thinking about the theory in my PhD at the London School of Economics in the early 70s. Um, and my book did not come out until 1990. It was a 20-year gestation period. And it was only after my book came out that um, I got together with Dale Mortensen and we pushed it one step further that finally clicked it. Mm-hmm. And, and that work was published in 1994. So it was a good, good 20 years of, of lonely theoretical research locked up initially in a very dusty library at the LSE, subsequently in a not so nice office at the LSE and finally in a really nice new building at the LSE. <laughs> Baba, in, 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 in practical terms, you are doing something now. I mean, uh, as, as chairman of the, uh, uh, of the Council on the National Economy of Cyprus, so you are dealing with the practical realities of, of an economic situation. How are you applying all the research that you've done to this particular situation and what caused that particular yeah. situation to well, come about? Well, well, you see, when, I mean, at the same time as I was doing my work in unemployment, I realized the very close connections between the aggregate economy, because, between the macroeconomy and the labor market. So I've always tried to keep in touch with what's going on in the, in, in the aggregate economy, I mean, in the theory of research in the aggregate economy. So when the, um, when the suggestion to introduce the euro first came out and to um, increase integration within the European Union, I became totally convinced that it was going to be good for the smaller economies of Europe. So I thought that was time to start looking back in my national backgrounds. I'm, I'm Greek Cypriot. My, my first nationality where I was brought up was Cyprus, a tiny country of less than one million people. But I'm also Greek, Greece, a small European country of 10 million people. So I thought it would be good for both countries to join the, the euro. Now, you won't be surprised to hear that since then I've been very disappointed in the way that the eurozone has been developing since the adoption of the single currency. So I thought this was time to look back and try and help uh, my country of birth mm. as much as possible. And that made me join the, the council. Now. What I do think now is that 
the, the policies that are followed in the European Union, which are mainly dictated by Germany, are not the right policies for uh, countries like Cyprus, Greece, and, this, and Southern Europe generally, including Portugal, uh, Spain, Italy. Uh, unfortunately, there's been strong resistance to uh, following policies that uh, would help uh, the southern countries overcome the current debt problems they have. Mm -hmm. The debt problems were very much caused by the single currency and the guarantees that uh, initially that institutional structure was giving to them to, to borrow and spend, which they followed. With hindsight, maybe not the right policy, but if they tell you you can do it, you go and do it. And um, something needs to be done quickly. Otherwise, the whole structure is in danger of collapsing. And there doesn't seem to be willingness to uh, do those things quickly. In fact, I can mention, uh, by the way, on I took the flight to come here on Monday evening. Uh, Monday lunchtime, the head of the Eurogroup uh, called Jürgen Deiseblum, the um, Dutch economics minister, was visiting Cyprus to see how the program of... Uh, Reform and the loan program was getting on, and I met him. We had uh, lunch, in fact, at the Dutch embassy in Nicosia. And I told him exactly this. And, and first he said, Ah, oh, no, no, you know, we're moving fast, don't worry, we'll do these things. And afterwards, in, uh, in private, I pressed him a little bit more. I said, You know, the crisis started in, 19, uh, sorry, in 2010. It's now four years, and we still haven't made any progress in setting up a new institutional structure how to deal with the banks, how to restructure banks, which banks to close down and which not. And, and he admitted it. He said, unfortunately, political pressures are such that it's very difficult to move forward. But that's, and that's exactly what I'm worried about. So, so you've not made too much progress then? Well, we haven't. And in fact, even now, no one knows in Europe what, what will happen if a major bank uh, became unable to... Um, uh, meet the demands from depositors. You know, if, if it became on paper insolvent, how do you, what do you do with that bank? You know, how do you recapitalize it? Mm. In Cyprus, the main two banks were recapitalized by uh, taking away half of deposits over 100,000 euros. 100,000 euros was left alone as guaranteed. Anything above 100,000 half of deposits were converted to shares in new banks. Effectively, people considered them lost. I'm afraid I was a victim of that too, actually. <laughs> mm. And um, that's what's known as a bail-in. You know, instead of giving money from outside, from a, 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 a big central bank that acts as lender of last resort, you take it from depositors. Now, there are no guarantees now in Europe that this will not happen again. Mm. And therefore, anyone with a lot of money in the Eurozone would be completely mad to invest, to put it all in a European bank. You know, don't do it unless you know, unless you sit on the board of the bank and you know what's going on in a way that the general public doesn't. And yet, we have a European Central Bank that cannot act as a lender of last resort. It, it determines interest rates. But it cannot recapitalize banks if it decides that a bank needs help. Mm -hmm. and, and this is simply not a workable system for a unit with a single currency. If I could uh, try to bring uh, the discussion uh, closer to Asia, 
and, and the kinds of, of issues that uh, Asian economies uh, face. I mean, take Malaysia. Uh, we've had a situation where we're trying to address our uh, uh, deficit, you know, our fiscal deficit, and we say we cannot have a prolonged fiscal deficit because of the cost of it. One of the costs is unemployment when the economy sort of turns down as, as uh, asset values you know, are, are, are depreciated. And therefore, we cut down uh, uh, things that are costly uh, to the budget. And so we, we begin to, 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 to reduce subsidies, for example, to make the economy more efficient. Uh, but there are political pressures. So one, fiscal discipline we are trying to impose. On the other hand, we have this pressure to ensure that there is a, a, a determinable standard of living uh, for the people, even as you manage the budget. And this will sort of address issues you know, like having you know, sort of services, you know, having social services, safety nets even, like is provided in Europe. And of course, this, this tension between fiscal discipline and, and social safety nets and, and support of social services becomes a big issue in the management of the economies as we go forward. Malaysia, China, name, you name it. How do we go forward from what you have learned? How should we manage our economies? What, what we learned in Europe and what should be avoided when you're doing it is not to create rigid institutional structures mm -hmm. that would be very difficult to reform in future. You know, you need to follow a more flexible economy where the economy works without too much interference and, and regulation by central government. And then government providing the security for, for job loss or, or income loss in a way that doesn't interfere with the market. Now, the, the countries in Europe that have succeeded in doing that are, are the Scandinavians, mainly Denmark and, and Sweden, in that they have a very business-friendly environment. So the private sector is a driving force of, of economic growth. But at the same time, they have enough tax revenue for the government to distribute to um, uh, groups with low-income uh, uh, the, the unemployed uh, families that need to be supported by, like single parent families mm. but they avoided the, um, the, the the sort of legislation that that for example Britain had in the 70s and then it was so difficult to reform it mm. and there were demonstrations in the streets and riots and everything so that, that you need to be very careful about in, in how you structure at the same time, what we learn in Europe now is that a build-up of debt to finance these programs, which is what was happening in the Eurozone, in the, in the South especially, is not a good medium-run to long-run policy because in the short run you might get away with it, but in the long run it's going to come back and hit you and the problems will be, will be far worse. So, it's, so it boils down to being a political decision to what extent do you um, uh, want to support, which essentially means how much tax, how much tax revenue do you want the, your government to get? And once you decide that, then don't try and get the support 
from within the private sector. You know, for example, to not impose restrictions on employers to protect the workers, because ultimately they don't protect the workers. They simply make it more difficult for employers to create jobs that the workers will take. You know, leave the employers alone to run their business the way they want, and that we know is the best for the workers, but those who happen to lose their jobs, those who are on low incomes, should get supported directly by the government in a way that gives them incentives to get back into the labor force. I would agree with you on, on not have creating the rigid institutions from which you cannot run away you know, uh, later on. Yet, yet, there is a lot of, uh, if you like, uh, traditional, uh, classical, uh, Western economic uh, pressure on countries like China. I know you've been spending a bit of time mm. looking at the Chinese economy. On, on countries like them, like China, you know, to provide more services to support the people's lives, whilst at the same time you say they must have more social rebalance into a more consumption-driven economy. Mm. Can they do both at the same time? It, it can do uh, both, but re rebalancing is not a government decision. I mean, government cannot force you to consume more. Uh, you know, when you say rebalance, you mean invest less, consume more. Th that's something that will come with time. I mean, when, when the rate of growth is so fast, it, it's inevitable that, um, that people will not immediately go out and spend it all. They will start saving, they're worried about the past. In, in China, there is still a lot of family, inter-family support. Uh, younger people are supporting the older generation that didn't enjoy a, a fast rate of growth. It, it's gradually coming on its own, and it should be left alone to, uh, to, but, to but, take you know, place. But, 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 uh, but, but Chris, the, the, the thing is, in China, you, it would seem to me you cannot generate the kind of uh, consumption demand unless you fulfill certain basic needs. And uh, uh, so a, a Chinese income earner, uh, his first need is for his accommodation. And then, you know, he wants uh, his, his food and, and clothing. And then he wants his motor car. Before he starts consuming, i.e., you know, so you have all these consumer goods that's going to come to drive the further growth of the economy and perhaps to rebalance in terms of the sort of imports coming in. Yeah. So the consumption pattern which is based on a social predisposition may mm. not be the same as it is say with the western economy so when you say rebalance and change everything it might not work out because their patterns are different mm. well I, I mean, there are two issues that we should have mixed up one is the re rebalancing of consumption by the private sector as a whole the other one is how do we support low incomes, and especially those who are missing out on the uh, current uh, e economic growth. Now, the, the second one might become part of a social e economic policy, which is very much absent in, in China at present, and, and that could be running along the lines that I was saying before, that, uh, you know, do collect more tax revenue, do use some of your surpluses to support uh, low-income uh, families. But I, I think the big rebalancing will not come from that um, uh, group of the population. 
Mm. Where the rebalancing needs to come from is, is from the very big savings that are converted into investment, and you're saying those savings should be converted into consumption. Now, the only way the state can do it is to tax the savings away and use the money to spend in consumption. I don't think that will be a good policy uh, anyway. The state in China especially, most of the money they are spending now comes from the sales of land because under the previous communist regimes, they acquire land. Now it owns big pieces of land, and every now and then it will open a new area of land, sell it, use the money to build the infrastructure. That's fair enough. That's done. Where, where the consumption needs to come from is from the vast earnings that go to private businesses, uh, which are not being spent. But as, I'm, but as I'm saying, progress is being made there, and, and more of it is being spent. In my view, though, since you're uh, talking about China, China needs to confront two major problems um, before it can come out as a world-leading economy. The first one is finance. How do you deal with financial liberalization, which is needed? How do you make sure that borrowing and lending by the banks is done in an open way and not through political influence at the local level, political connections, but entirely on the basis of the productive prospects of the person who wants to borrow. That, that's still not there. Uh, when do you open your capital markets to international competition and make your currency freely, freely tradable? That's needed to be done if, if they're going to continue being a major uh, trading country. That's number one. And number two, it's an um, urban problem. It's the, it concerns uh, the structure of cities, internal migrations. The policy they're following currently is creating second-class citizens in the cities. People who move now into the cities do not have, although they're Chinese and they live in Beijing, for example, they do not have the same rights as, uh, as Beijing, original Beijingers who are there. And obviously, that's not a satisfactory situation for a country to discriminate against its own citizens on the, on the basis of place of birth. And I don't think they've, they've solved that puzzle. It's a big puzzle because it's a massive country. Uh, one solution is to open it up completely. You might end up with a Beijing of uh, 50 million people in the Shanghai, but uh, at least you are treating all your citizens equally. Another one is to build a wall and say no one comes in anymore until we find a way of communicating without hitting each other. I don't know the answer to that yeah. one, but I have distinguished colleagues yeah, in maybe, urban... Maybe, maybe, maybe one, one final question relating to how the region... Before I you know, so open up for five minutes of questions, at least, from, 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 from the, our friends of... It, uh, how does the region relate to and respond to China in terms of its economic rebalancing. I mean, Malaysia, for example, is... Uh, China is Malaysia's largest trading partner. Hmm. Uh, it's coming close to US 100 billion US dollars. And it's the third largest in, 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 in Asia uh, after Japan and Korea, which makes it pretty substantial. And indeed, Malaysia itself is China's number three uh, in, in Asia. Mm. So there's a very strong you know, trade link 
But then as, as, as China rebalances, what do countries like Malaysia, uh, those with these trading links with China, do to adjust? Do they, do they, do they diversify, look back at EU and America again? Or do they, of course, diversify the composition of the exports, uh, taking into account new Chinese demand? What do you advise they should be doing to adjust to a rebalancing China? I, I think it would be, well, I think it's generally a, a mistake to focus entirely on one trading partner saying that's where my future is because you never know what happens with acquired political influence, you know, being dependent on one. So it's always good to have a, a diversified portfolio of trading partners. It, 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 it's an aside, but we see it very much now with the way that uh, the European Union depends on Russia for uh, all its oil and raw materials, and, and that dictates what policy the European Union follows towards Russia on, on other things that they want to, to diverge. It, it's, it's important to avoid that kind of, um, of problem, you know, of putting all your eggs in one basket. On the other hand, I, I don't think China is... Um, is going to slow down very much other than what you would expect it to slow down given that uh, the supply of agricultural labor is drying out and, and, and you need to move on to the next stage of economic development which is the technologically more advanced stage which doesn't bring growth rates in the two uh, digits. Uh, so really my answer to your question is is continued trading with China. Nothing very much will happen in the foreseeable future. But at the same time, do not put all your eggs there by sure. turning away from uh, Europe and, and America saying that that's where your future is because you're a big enough country, your future sh should be looking both left and right and, and diversify in your trading relations. Thank you. I think we, ha we, we give about five minutes for, for, for comments or questions from the floor. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is there anything? Kishore, uh, 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 anything? Uh, there, there, there's Mike there. You know, uh, I'm glad you, you discussed China and its responsibility. But the number one economy in the world is still the United States of America. And its tapering policy, as you know, has shook markets a lot all over the world. Mm. And if you had to be, in a sense, the global economic chief of the world as a whole, and you wanted to manage this process of both QE and tapering, what would you have done differently? Um, well, it's a position I don't cherish, I have, to say, I have to tell you. But I probably wouldn't have done anything very different, actually, from what, you're, from what they are doing. They did very well to uh, follow the QE when they did. I wish the European Central Bank did the same. In fact, I did say in public, at the very least, you know, do what the Federal Reserve is doing with QE because our economy in Europe needs it. They didn't because of uh, political pressures again. But you cannot uh, continue indefinitely doing it, otherwise the dollar will, will just collapse in value. And, and it's not something they want, it's not something China wants for that matter. Uh, 
so a gradual tapering, in, in my view, is the, is the right policy. Uh, I think Ben Bernanke was doing the right, the, the right thing to be pre-announcing it as well and following. I should say that the new, uh, in case you don't know it, the new um, president of the Federal Reserve is an ex-LSE lecturer in international relations. In fact, we became uh, very friendly when she was uh, with George Akerlof at the London School of Economics. And, um, and with her background, she's following the right policy, I think, as well. Another credit for the LSE. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any further question, please? I should may maybe, whilst you're thinking of your next question, I, I am not worried actually about emerging countries from the tapering policy, the way that sometimes I read in the press. I, I don't think there are going to be major withdrawals of capital from emerging countries to go and reinvest into the uh, American banking system because rates of return will still be higher in the uh, in, in the emerging countries than than in the United States, there might, there will be some inevitably, but nothing that will make these economies feel it. This, despite yeah. uh, Yellen's comments about potential increase in interest rates in the U.S. Yeah, they are not they are not going to be big. Mm. I don't think they are going to be sufficiently big to to repatriate lots and lots of uh, money. But, or uh, but the dollar money. dollar appreciation uh, has been pretty pretty strong. So, you know, what you don't get yeah. in terms of income, you might get in terms of capital growth, you know. But you can never, you always do it after the event, though. No one can forecast what happens to the dollar. I yeah. do hope it appreciates it will be good for Europe. I think Euro coming yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah. With the U.S. economy showing potential growth. Is that, is that any further question? Arnie? Is it, oh, Andrew, Andrew. Andrew Shank? Give me your prognosis of uh, European, is it really bottoming out or is it still going to go through a long period of, uh, of uh, struggling, put it this way? So, so what was the, European, the, the Eurozone, you know. Oh, the Eurozone. Has it bottomed out in your view or well, you know, has it? Well, well you see, I, I mean, the Eurozone, is, it's finally uh, turning. You know, the, there is going to be positive growth uh, this year. Um, in all 17 countries except for one, Cyprus. <laughs> and may, maybe because of the economic advice they are getting there, they are not quite ready to get the positive growth. Um, but it's very, very small and minor. And unemployment is not going to fall. So it, 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 it seems to be, to be, to be recovering despite the economic policies that have been followed. It, it didn't have to be in recession for so long. But it's basically a, a mature economy. It's got well-trained labor force. It, it has Germany as, a, as, as an engine of, of growth, which is accumulating vast uh, balance of payments, uh, surpluses, and reserves. So had you left it alone, it will have recovered by now and growing at, at 2, 25 3%, you know, like the United States. Have you done the QE? You have accelerated that. Given the austerity that was imposed on it, it held it back 
by maybe two years, and it's bringing very anemic growth. You know, I mean, you have countries like Greece, GDP fell by 25% since 1980. You know, we lost a quarter of national income, national product and income since 2010. We're going to regain maybe 1.1 this year. It's plus 1.1, but what is it going to do to you when you have minus 25%? So, you know, it's, it's recovering, but it's so slow. You just want to give it a push and let you know, grow. You know. And, and, and I have to say one thing I, I learned, you know, something I said at the LSE when I gave my um, inaugural lecture as regional professor in December. What, what I've learned now is that, is that Keynesian, Keynesianism is not dead. You know, we thought in economics we killed Keynesianism, we moved on to other theories. But in fact, it isn't. It, it, what we're seeing in the Eurozone is a typical Keynesian scenario. A country's in recession, you hit it with deflationary policies, and you're getting more deflation and no growth. And in fact, I think the biggest risk in Europe now is that prices are falling. So we're becoming the, the Japan of the global economy without abenomics. We'll have one last question. Oh, yes. Uh, Attila, is that you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, uh, being from the LSE, I, 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 I know that um, asking an economist to make a prediction is probably the worst thing to do. Uh, so I won't ask you, to make you, uh, ask you to make a prediction, but rather ask you, where do you see the biggest risk in the global economy now? And wh- wh- what do you think would be the, it would be the next crisis point um, um, in, in the world? I mean, it may not be a financial crisis. It could be a crisis protectionism, perhaps. But where do you see as, as, as the biggest issue that faces? It could even be political or sociopolitical, uh, um, you know, judging by, by recent events in, in, in Europe and, and, uh, and uh, the Far East. Well, you're right in saying that you shouldn't ask an economist to tell you that. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, I, I mean, the, I, I, don't think the, I don't think the world economy as a whole is running economic risks of the kind that we saw in the financial crisis. The, only, the, the biggest pure economic risks that I see are still, in, are still in Europe due to deflation. If we get into a deflation, we could get into a deflationary spiral given what's happening to prices in Europe. And because we cannot have negative interest rates, that might have implications for, for the rest. I, I, I hope not. I'm not saying we will do, but it's the risk I saw with a probability less than 50%. The, the big risks I see in the world economy are all connected with political conflict, which we see uh, emerging here and there. You know, for example, if there is political conflict between China and Japan, I think that's a massive risk you know, over, the, uh, over the islands. That's a massive political risk. If the, uh, the conflict, or if you like, the, the differences with Russia um, prolong and, and no solution is found and we start embarking on a, on a war, war of words and sanctions and everything, I think that's going to be a big risk uh, for, for both economies. That, that's, that's my biggest fear, that something will happen, uh, some, one of these, what appears to be minor conflicts will become major, and, and this involves major players. They are not just tiny little countries that uh, we might forget about. Uh, China and Japan are, 
a huge economies in, in, in the world economy. Europe and Russia is, a, is the biggest country in the world, biggest supplier of uh, energy. Th those are my worries, not so much on the pure economic side. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Chris. It is, it is it indeed quite appropriate that Chris ends his, 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 his uh, few words with us this evening by identifying uh, an area of risk which is essentially political hmm, in nature, which sets us up quite nicely for tomorrow, you know, when we start uh, talking about, you know, um, international relations in Asia uh, and the region. And, you, of course, you hmm. quite rightly identified in my conversations with some people also the China-Japan situation, which then purely underlines, it really underlines the, the interrelationship between whatever th economic theory, whatever economic policies that one has, that ultimately it is linked. They are linked uh, to uh, the economic political realities, the political realities of any particular situation. And our region here faces some, some, some serious political challenges even as we prosper economically and face the challenges of the economy. Can I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, mm -hmm. to thank Chris Pisaradis for his comment. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.